All right, guys, if you can make your way back to your seats. As you're doing so, uh, let me give you a couple announcements. A um, couple things, just to, if this is your first time here or you want to know what's going on, just a couple things. Uh, first off, if you're a guest here, we are glad to have you with us. Um, on about every little section, there's a long, skinny thing that we call a Connect card. Um, if you are not on our mailing list uh, or email list, Basically, uh, we send out a number of resources throughout the week to encourage your faith. Um, I do a weekly um, Bible study video that I send out to you guys. And actually, this week, you're getting two weekly Bible study videos from me. Um, We send out devotionals every week. It's it's how we primarily keep you guys updated on what we do. Uh, So if if you are able to and you're a guest, feel free to fill out one of those Connect cards. And then right back there, there's a sign and a little that says Give Thanks and a little box underneath. Uh, if you could drop that off in there, uh, guys, if you're a guest with us, let that be your offering to us this week. Uh, we are glad to have you with us. Uh, if you're doing this online, by the way, you can go to our website, www.wearereconciled. Why am I typing with my fingers while I'm saying that? Wearereconciled.com. Uh, go to the bottom side of the screen and you can sign up for our mailing list online as well. Uh, also back there, same box. If you came, uh, to give an offering, uh, you can drop it off there, or you can give online, same website, same thing. Go to the bottom of the page, left-hand side of the screen, and you are all good. We believe the churches are supported by the people that make up the church. The church isn't a building, the church is the gathering. It is the people of God gathered together, and we are thankful for your generosity this morning. So, that said, um, we also have a weekly prayer meeting, Wednesdays, 9.30. Uh, we gather in here, and we spend about roughly 40 minutes to an hour uh, lifting up prayers. If you have never been part of uh, a specific like set-apart time for corporate worship before, uh, for corporate uh, prayer before, it's a great thing. Uh, it, it sort of functions as our own little small group with the folks that have been coming, but also we're going to teach you how to pray. We're going to give you guides for how to pray. Uh, we, uh, one of the things with prayer is, is it's the thing that everyone thinks Everyone kind of thinks they know how to do it, but everyone thinks they could do it better. And so we want to give you resources in order to grow your, your, your guys' personal prayer life. And we believe one great way to do that is by enhancing our corporate prayer life. So, with that said, if you would, guys, if you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 25. As I said, it's great to be back with you all. Uh, for you guys who are at home, I want you to know we love you, we miss you. Uh, we hope to see you again soon, but we understand also if you're taking precautions for your own health and safety, we, we totally understand that, and we're glad that you can be with us during this time. So if you've been with us, we've now been doing this for like, I don't know, we launched in February, and we've been doing this thing for roughly seven months now. And if you've been with us for a while, you kind of know the idea of what we tend to do here. Uh, basically, what we tend to do is take, we go, bo- we go through books of the Bible, uh, but some books are, not all books are the same size. Uh, so some books we do small little bits. They're only like six, ten chapters. So we do those in like a month or two months or things like that. We just finished doing that with Colossians. Some of them are big beasts. And one of those is the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So if you've been with us uh, since we launched, you know what we've done is we started out in our first section, we went through the first 15 chapters of Genesis. We looked at creation all the way to the Ch- Tower of Babel. And then the next section in Genesis we took uh, about 10 weeks going through is we looked at the figure of 
Abraham. And we spent about 10 weeks looking at Abraham. And now, uh, this week is the beginning of our third of these series, which is looking at the life of a man who become known as Israel. Obviously, when I say that name, even if you didn't realize it was a name, you're probably familiar with the nation of Israel. It's an, it's, it conjures up a lot of different understanding, a lot of different images to people. And so when we say that this is the namesake of that, of that nation, it means we're talking about a significant figure in the Bible. And so we're, we're going to, for the next uh, like 10 weeks, we're going to be looking at the life of the man who'd become Israel. Here when we meet him, he's named Jacob. But I understand we're jumping in at Genesis chapter 25. And so I'm not going to assume everyone just read Genesis chapters 1 through 24 before they came here this morning, right? It's okay. We're all on that page. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version to get you on, uh, up to date. So you start out in Genesis 1, you start out with creation. And what we see is that God creates the heavens and the earth out of nothing but his own power and his word. God creates the universe out of nothing. He creates... Um, the sea and the land and the stars and the earth and all these things, all the creatures that uh, fill it, and then we get to humanity. And as we get to humanity, what we find is that God creates humanity unique from everything else in his creation. He says man is made in the image of God or in the likeness of God. That's a tall compliment. That's a big compliment to be told. You are made in the likeness of God. And what we see, we might ask, well, what does it mean to be made in the likeness of God? Well, the first thing we learn in Genesis is that God is Lord over all and he rules over all. And so when he creates humanity in his image, what he does is he gives humanity this little plot of the universe called the earth. And he says, rule over it, have dominion over it and fill it, multiply throughout it. And so the call and the command of humanity is to spread humanity throughout the earth, to rule over it, and to use it all for the glory of God, modeling after their great creator in whose likeness they were made. This works out really well for about three verses in the Bible. And we get to Genesis chapter 3, and what we find is, rather than submitting to God as Lord... Our first, an- our, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, instead say, they listen to the voice of Satan and say, I want to be Lord of my own life. And so they take forbidden fruit, which your kids are going to be learning at if they're, if they're in our kids today. They take the, the forbidden fruit, and essentially what that taking the fruit is, it is them saying, I don't want to live my life on God's terms. I want to live my life on my own terms. And as a result, the world breaks. Sin Sorrow, pain, all these things are the result of people saying, I want to live life not according to God's terms, but on my own terms. But even there in Genesis, we have this promise that arises. God says that he will one day send a descendant or a seed, as he says. A seed who will crush the head of the serpent. And this is the first... um, This is the first prophecy in scripture that we find of a a savior, basically. God says, I'm going to send a savior to to reverse all that sin has has broken in this world. And so we're left asking the question, who is that seed? Who is that descendant going to be? And with our last study, we finally find out the family from which that will come. Of the family of a man named Abraham. God finds this man, Abram living in a pagan culture, and he says, look, come follow me. 
Trust in me, worship me, and I will make your descendants uh, more innumerable, innumerable than the sand of the seas and the stars in the heavens. If you, could count, if you could count them, your descendants will be more than that. And so God promises to bless Abraham, to make him into a mighty nation. Actually, as we read on, multiple nations. And he plans to ultimately bless the whole earth through him. And so we understand that that seed will come through the lineage of Abraham. But the Savior isn't Abraham. As we see, Abraham is a flawed guy. He makes tons of mistakes. He is, if there's one thing you can understand, Abraham is held up as this figure of faith often, which is true. But along that faith, we also see doubt arise in his life from time to time over and over again. His life is filled with both successes and failures, just as our own is. And where we last left off, Abraham passed away, an old man full of days, leaving behind his son Isaac to carry this blessing that God had given to him to the next generation, which is where we pick up today. Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 19. So, as our story begins, we we meet, well, we don't meet, but we're reintroduced to now here, Isaac, the son of Abraham, and Rebekah, his wife. And we find them in a very similar, uh, familiar scenario. Verse 19 reads, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Okay, you know the story of Abraham, you know that it is a long waiting period to have an heir show up. If you, can, if you remember from our story, God promises Abram that he will give him a descendant, and then progressively through a system of, uh, of time where he goes through successes and high points in his life and his faith and failures, what we find is God keeps revealing himself to Abraham and doubling down on that promise. Here, however, we find a similar situation, that Isaac and Rebekah are also having trouble conceiving. We also get a little detail here. We get a backstory for Rebekah. We're told that she's the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, and the sister of, who is uh, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. So, it's really common in, in this time to, to refer to your father in your lineage, so we, we even still might do this. You might go, I could go, hey, I'm Kev, I'm Kev Gimmer, I'm Jack Gimmer's son. Like, people understand that idea, and it, it's pretty common. Back then, that was like giving your last name. What you wouldn't always do is drop your uncle's name in that process. So the fact that we understand uh, that, that she has an uncle Laban is important. It's sort of a, a little hint at what's to come about later on in our story. Now, we notice a change here. We notice similarities to Abraham's story with their, with their struggle to conceive, but we also notice a lot of differences. See, where Abraham took a, had a lot of doubts, he took a second wife at one point and had a kid with her because he, didn't, he wasn't able to trust God and his promises, here we see Isaac takes a much simpler route in this process. He prays. Now, port note. If given the option of taking a second wife or just praying and waiting, take option B, guys, okay? 
That not only that, but we hear that he specifically prays for his wife. This is a specific type of prayer that we, that we read of often in the scriptures. This is a prayer of intercession. And if you come to our Wednesday uh, morning uh, prayer meeting, you know we talk about different types of prayers, and one of them we talk about is intercessory prayers. What's an intercessory prayer? Well, a prayer of intercession is praying for someone else. It could be someone who asked you to pray for them. So often people go, pray for me, I have this coming up, I have a surgery coming up, I have this coming up, there's different things, and we go, okay, and we pray for them. But intercessory prayers can also be prayers for people who don't want it or didn't ask for it. Let me give you some examples. Jesus told his disciples, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The assumption is probably... Those who were persecuting the church weren't also throwing in prayer requests while they were doing it. Um, I'll give you another one. Often here, when I pray for different things, you'll hear me pray for for different national leaders and such, those in authority. Now, while I wish this was the case, I understand that not everyone who holds a political office or an office of authority right now is sitting around going, I really hope those Christians are praying for. But we pray for them nonetheless. Why? Because God's good and God hears our prayers. Now, specifically, when we talk about intercessory prayers, there's a a specific role that that, that comes into play. That is the role of a mediator. What's a mediator? A mediator is a middleman, a go-to guy who goes between the people and God and God to the people. In Old Testament Israel, this would have been fulfilled by the office of the priest, who would go before the Lord offering sacrifices and lifting up prayers on the people's behalf. But here we see that basically, just as Abraham before him, Isaac functions as kind of the household priest in his house. He prays on behalf of his own household, which is a reminder, guys, if you are the head of your household, you are called as a man of God to be praying for your household as well. But we see Isaac functioning here in that role. He prays. Now, instead of... God having to show himself, uh, show up for them physically over and over again and say, hey, trust me, you're going to have a child. Hey, trust me, it's going to be Sarah's. Hey, trust me, it's going to be a boy. All those things. Instead, Isaac trusts. It shows shows that Isaac has learned a few things from his dad, which is good. Or specifically, that he learned a few things from his dad's mistakes, which as a father, I can tell you, man, I hope my kids do that. Hope they know how to learn from my mistakes because that's probably all I'm going to give them to learn off of. Um, So we see that, and then we know that uh, we we know that Isaac is a real mediator, a good go-between. Because why? God hears his prayer and answers his request. So this lets us know something. See, this is important to remember. I'll often remind you of the original audience. This was written to the people of Israel leaving Egyptian slavery, going into the Promised Land. They've seen, all, they've seen a bunch of miracles. They've seen the seas part, okay? They've, they eat food that rains from the sky. They saw God use plagues to, to, get, to free them from slavery. And they heard the story of this guy named Abraham, who God kept appearing to to assure him of his promises. But here, we see Isaac. Isaac prays, he trusts, and God answers. 
And it's a reminder to us. It reminds us and it lets them and us know that just because we don't necessarily receive some mystical experience, just because every time you pray to God, he doesn't speak to you in an audible voice or appear to you in, a, in bodily form, that doesn't, mean he, he, that doesn't mean he doesn't care. It doesn't mean he doesn't hear and it doesn't mean he's not there. Instead, what this reminds us of the fact is that God is listening to his people and their prayers. And he is responding to them as well. Even if you don't have a mystical experience the way, say, Abraham did. Even if you don't have a miraculous appearance, God is still listening. And so God answers this prayer. She conceived and the, it conceives and the answered prayer turns out to be more than Rebecca bargained for. Verse 22. The children struggled together within her and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Okay, Rebecca is having terrible birth pains, to the point where, as some translations bring this out really well, she literally doesn't know if she's going to survive. She's having terrible pains, and she asks God, Why is this happening? Am I even going to be able to stand this? And God's answer to her is, surprise, twins, essentially. Uh, what God is saying there, he says, not only is it two twins that are, in, that are with you, but these are two nations to be that are inside you. And, this, uh, and essentially, uh, the, the pain that she experienced from those kids is going, is a, um, it's, it's a, it, they're going to see that pain forever. Uh, for, for long down the road, those kids are going to be fighting long when they're out. They were fighting when they're in the womb. They're going to be fighting when they're outside of the womb. And as we'll see, as we go in the story, they're going to be fighting as nations as well. So, side note, if you were a twin, call your mom up and say that you love her and you're sorry today. It was probably not easy. Okay? So then the Lord tells Rebecca. He makes a promise. He says, the one shall be stronger than the other the older shall serve the younger. Now, it was very common in the ancient world that the, um, that the older child would have been the favored child, so to speak. Uh, usually the, the first son would get a double portion of their inheritance. Here, however, we see these things reversed. Uh, we see that it's not the, that the older shall serve the younger of the two, and it's the younger of the two that will, be, that will rise to power, so to speak. Now, imagine, listen to this promise again. I was thinking about this. Listen to how this is worded. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, if you hear that right now and you don't know where this story is going, what's your assumption? Well, the strong kid, that's going to be the second one who comes out, right? That seems to, that's what you would naturally think if you heard this. You would obviously think, okay, if, the, the strong, if uh, one's going to be stronger than the other, then, then the second kid that comes out, if the first one comes out strong, the second one's going to come out like a real manly macho man, which doesn't turn out to be the case. We continue reading. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so that his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Okay, first off, I want to point out something. 
How long did Isaac have to wait? 20 years. Guys, take note of this. Not all answered prayers are answered right away. Just because your, your prayer did not come to you right after you said it, it doesn't mean God doesn't hear, it doesn't mean that he isn't there, it doesn't mean that he doesn't care. So, 20 years go by, and finally they have these children, and we're introduced to the brothers. The first is this hairy little ginger-haired monster that they name Esau. I think I'm kidding. Esau means hairy, basically. So they just said, here, here's the first one, hairy. The second one comes out, and he's grabbing Esau's heel, and so they name him Jacob, which means heel, which means, one, they're really not that clever when they're with naming names, but understand, calling your kid heel or heel grabber is not a compliment in this day and age. Often in the Bible, the, 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 the heel is a way to describe being betrayed by someone. Let me give you an example. David wrote in Psalm 41, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is actually a term we still use today to describe like the bad guys. The bad guy in a professional wrestling match is called the heel. Uh, the Christmas classic, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, contains the line, You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. Okay? So by calling it, so we have two kids here, Harry and the heel, Jacob and Esau. And then we read, and with these guys come out, and then we read about them. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay. So this is a really polite way of the Bible saying Esau got picked first in kickball over Jacob. Esau grows up. He's the younger, remember. And he's the one who comes up, and he's the, he's the obvious, stronger-seeming brother. He's big, he's this macho man, he's hairy, and he goes out and he hunts and all this stuff. And he's everything we think of as a macho man. And then we read that Jacob is a quiet guy, dwelling in tents. Now... Couple things that are worth noting here. First, when it, 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 there's a weird way this is phrased. Every once in a while, the language is just weird, and it doesn't say. It, see, J, Jacob had a job. He was most likely a shepherd, but it doesn't say Esau was a hunter. Jacob was a shepherd. Instead, it tells you where Jacob lived. It says Esau was a hunter. Jacob was a, twen- a tent dweller, which once again reminds the audience of something they have in common. See, as God created, just, just as Jacob was an, as a tent dweller, what are the people of Israel at this point in time? They're tent dwellers. They're on their way from Egypt to the land of Canaan. And so when they hear this, this is the author's way of hinting us into something, basically, that they should see themselves to some extent in this figure, Jacob. Now, so it's a way to connect with our audience. Second, we learn that the parents pick favorites. This is an important thing to understand, guys. Just because the Bible tells you something does not mean the Bible tells you to do something, okay? This is really important. The Bible isn't saying, the, the parents pick your favorites. Great job. Go and do likewise. That's not the idea. As a matter of fact, the Bible condemns this. The Bible condemns this as sin. This is the sin of partiality. See, partiality is when you favor one person 
over another because of what they can do for you. We, he- we read here that Esau, that Jake, or I'm sorry, Isaac loved his son Esau because he brought home he brought home the bacon. Literally, he brought home meat for him. He'd go out and hunt, and he'd come back. And I understand that if my son every once in a while just came back and said, "Here, Dad, steak," I would probably have a have a real affinity for him as well. So Isaac picks his favorite. Rebecca picks her, her favorite. It doesn't specifically tell us why Rebecca picks uh, Jacob as her favorite. Uh, we might infer that she simply remembers the promise God had given her. It could be because he was the quiet one. I don't know. There, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us, but there, we can infer some things from this. Point is, partiality is not, this is not a good thing. Partiality is a sin because it goes contrary to the character of God. And partiality can take two forms. In one sense, we can show partiality when we give, uh, when we give unjust favor to someone because it benefits us. We see this in bribes or in nepotism, things like that. That's a form of partiality. Or it could mean holding someone else down in order to help yourself out. Various forms of oppression are, in essence, a form of partiality. Um, And we're told, like I said, that this is a sin because it goes against who God is. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 says... For God shows no partiality. Why? Well, because God, God shows no partiality because he needs no one's help. There's, he doesn't need someone to bribe or barter with him. or someone, uh, He doesn't need to push anyone else down to lift himself up because he's God. He, he already gets whatever he wants because he's the creator of everything. He is all-powerful. He doesn't need to manipulate people. People show partiality because they need to manipulate things. To their own favor. Likewise, he calls us as believers to trust in him and his provision for our lives and to avoid falling into the traps of partiality. So because God is impartial and he knows he controls everything, he says, you, my people who are made in my likeness, trust in the fact that I control everything. Don't try to manipulate the situation to your own benefit. Now, it's really important to mention this, guys, what partiality is and what partiality isn't. Because if we don't understand what it is and what it isn't, we're prone to think that maybe God actually shows partiality. So, a couple things that partiality isn't. Partiality isn't making a rational, wise decision based on options, okay? So, if you're a boss and you need to hire someone, and person A has a better resume and more experience than person B, You are not showing partiality by picking person A. You're showing wisdom, okay? So just because we make a decision based on the options given us does not mean it's partiality. Also, partiality is not the same as grace. And this is super important to understand. See, if we don't understand this, that partiality and grace are not the same things, we're going to read things in Scripture, especially about Jacob and Esau, And we're going to start to think that God shows partiality to Jacob. That's not true. God shows mercy to Jacob. God shows grace to Jacob. See, grace is an unmerited favor towards someone which the grace giver has the right to show to whom they please. Let me give you a really quick example. Let's say you saw someone out out on the street. They were homeless. They had no food. They had no money. 
and you decided to take it upon yourself to give them, to feed them, to clothe them, maybe to take them into your house, to give them money to get back on their feet. We wouldn't come up to you and say, you, no one would do this, no one would come up to you and say, whoa, 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 whoa. If you're going to show him generosity, you're going to show generosity to every homeless person, right? You'd say, no, I show grace because this is whom I show grace to. See, grace isn't merited. It's not earned. And so the grace giver is the one who has the, respons- who has the decision to whom they show that mercy and grace to. Um, by the way, um, so when God promises to bless Jacob over Esau, the, younger, the older shall serve the younger, he is not obligated to bless either of them. See, as many, scripture, as many pastors have said, when you read this, we, we naturally go, why not Esau? And we miss the point. It's why Jacob, okay? As we're going to see here, neither Jacob or Esau are great guys. Neither of them are, are, are deserving of God's blessing. Uh, now, there's a lot more to go into this, and so I'm going to be making a cutting room floor uh, video for this because I had to trim a whole, almost a whole other sermon out of this. And so if you were wondering, if you're sitting there wondering when I'm going to bring up Romans 9 and Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, uh, subscribe to our mailing list, and I'll be sending out that video this week. But let's get back into it. So God shows grace rather than partiality. The parents show partiality. They pick their favorites based on what they get out of them. The author then describes Jacob as a quiet man, which is actually a compliment. See, in the New Testament, being quiet is a good thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, We are to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. So being a quiet person isn't simply like a bad thing here. It tells us a little bit about Jacob. It tells us that he sits back and watches, which is exactly what we're about to see him do. Um, It paints the picture that Jacob is this person who's taking it all in. This is a good trait, trait to have. So, of course... We would expect Jacob to use his quietness and his, you know, his perceptiveness for good, right? Not quite. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay, first thing. Parents, beware of the quiet kids. Always watching, always planning, okay? So... Esau comes back from hunting famished, and he sees Jacob has a red, meaty stew there cooking. The English, tra- and so he says, give me some of that stew. Uh, what's funny is, every commentary I looked at talks about the original language, and the original language is like way more meat-headed than our English translations uh, bring about. It's literally like, give bread stew for pouring down my throat. Like, it's literally, that's the way it's described. It's like, give... Give bread to eat. That's, that's how he's explaining it there. So Esau's a big meathead. Anyways, this, of course, earns him the nickname Edom, which basically means red. 
This nickname will stick with him because the nation that will come from Esau is known as the Edomites. Basically, they're the Reds. They're the descendants of Esau or Edom. And this is significant because the Edomites, when the, re, when the original audience hear this, they understand this because of, of, of the different nations that the Israelites would encounter, few were bigger pains in their necks than the Edomites. Let me explain to you, give you an example. Numbers chapter 20 records the time the Israelites, when on their way to the land God had promised them out of slavery, come by the land of the Edomites, Moses asked them if they could just pass through their land. Like, hey, we're not trying to take anything. Please just let us pass through. And so they've just come out of nearly four centuries of slavery. He asked them, just let us pass through. We'll pay if we, if we drink from your well, whatever. We'll pay, we'll pay for everything. Now listen to how the Edomite king also known, known as Edom here, said to, what he says to them. Verse 18 of Numbers chapter 20 says, But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink your water and, and my livestock, then we'll pay for it. Just let only us pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through this territory. So Israel turned away from him. What's the point? Very simple. Don't ever trust a man who goes by red. <laughs> Do you know somebody? Sorry. No, just kidding. All right, quick. <laughs> Sorry, red. Um... <laughs> The point is to show the history between this deep-seated resentment between these two nations. He's like, guys, it wasn't just you passed by and they wanted to be mean to you. This goes back a long time. It goes back to your ancestors. Um, and it's to show, give the, the basis for the tension between those two nations. So rather than doing the brotherly thing, which is giving his brother a meal, Jacob, uh, Jacob instead cuts a deal with Esau. He says, sell me your birthright for a bowl of soup, essentially. Now, as I said, it was common in this time to give your birthright meant a double portion of the inheritance. And as we already learned, Abraham and Sarah were rich, okay? So a double portion wasn't nothing to scoff at here. So in a moment of stupidity, Esau gave away what was most likely... Immense riches, a double portion of his family's wealth, for all for the sake of a crummy bowl of soup. And at this point, the author actually gives us the meaning, which is really uncommon. See, the Bible doesn't always end stories with, and the lesson is, but here the author actually does. He says, thus Esau despised his birthright. So, sure, it was a total un underhanded move on Jacob's part. But the emphasis here is not on Jacob's craftiness, but rather Esau's complete lack of concern for his birthright, his inheritance. What's the author pointing out here? It's a cautionary tale. In other words, don't be like Esau. This brings us to the big idea for the week, guys. Know the value of your inheritance. See, this warning would have been understood loud and clear to the Israelites entering the promised land. God is giving you land. When you get there, don't lose sight of its value. See, God has brought you out of slavery, and he has literally parted the seas. He has made food down, rain from heaven, and he's about to bless you with this land. Don't take it for granted. Don't give up your blessing for short-term relief. 
How could the Israelites do that? How could they sell their inheritance? How could they sell their blessing? Well, really simple. By catering to the desires of the surrounding nations. This is what turns out to be the downfall of Israel. Basically, they start to look at the other nations around them and they say, I want to be like them. We need to be more like them. At one point they say, they've got kings, we need a king. At one point in time, they, they start to, see, they start to uh, bring in their cultural practices. They worship this God, we will worship this God. They offer these types, types of sacrifices, we will start offering up these types of sacrifices. Ultimately, becoming like the nations around them is Israel trading God and his commands to be more like them. It's selling themselves short of their inheritance. That's them. But what does it mean for you and me? How does this cautionary tale relate to a Christian living thousands of years later in the year 2020? Well, to answer that question, you have to answer another question. What is your inheritance? What is the Christian's inheritance? I think Jesus spells it out pretty beautifully for us in the Beatitudes. Listen to these promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's our inheritance? In short, everything. Mercy, comfort, satisfaction, heaven and earth, to see God and be called his children. This is your inheritance in Christ. This is what Jesus came and died to give you. And the point is, the point that I want to show you from this passage this week, guys, is don't sell yourselves short. God has, has created you and saved you to give you everything. To give you a relationship such that you can see him that you can be called his sons and daughters to satisfy you, to comfort you. All these things. Guys, don't sell yourself short. We're tempted to be like Esau in that moment. We're tempted to look at some fleeting thing, some little thing, and say, that's what I want. I will die if I don't get this. How could I live without that? And as a sad result, we end up trading the great blessings God has came to give us for nothing. It's like a crummy bowl of soup. What's the important part of this, guys? Trust God and follow his commands. He knows the inheritance he has for you. He knows the blessing he wants to give you. Hold on to that tightly and don't, give it to, don't sell it for anything. My point is, the blessing God has for you will always exceed the immediate pleasures. All the things that in the moment seem so important, 
God has so much better planned for you. Trust in him. Trust in his promises. Pray to him when you're anxious. And wait. Know that he's there. Know that he cares for you. See, God, God, Christ has called you to hunger for something so much greater than what the world has to offer. Bow your heads, let's pray. Lord, you, we thank you and we worship you. For you hear our prayers. You care for us. And you have plans to bless us. God, we believe the promises of Jesus that you plan to at one time give us all things. And we know that you have secured for us all things through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in our place. Lord, forgive us for the times we sell ourselves short. Forgive us for the times where we put the immediate in front of the eternal. God, help us to hunger for you and you alone. Help us to seek you and trust you and wait on you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.